as, as we begin today and we have kids in the room, I thought we could begin with a question. And that question is this, how do you mark the changing of the seasons. We're obviously in a new season of temperature, but as you move through the year, there's seasons that change and we all have activities and habits that change. I brought some images here of maybe how your family kids celebrates it. You know, maybe you start decorating in, in green, sorry, oranges and browns and, and fall colors. Maybe, maybe you hit up Starbucks for that pumpkin spice latte. You know, maybe you enjoy eating candles and crayons. I'm sorry, candy corn. Um, <laughs> I don't hate candy corn as much as I hate peeps, but it's close. <laughs> or maybe you unbox certain winter decorations or winter clothes or box up summer things. I boxed up my paddleboard this week felt like the end of a season. Well, in our family, one of the things we do to celebrate the changing of the seasons is we start listening to and watching the Harry Potter movies. Uh, just something about those films feels holiday-ish and festive. And if you don't know the story of the writer of the book that inspired the movie, J.K. Rowling, her story is profound and it's filled with tremendous adversity. Rowling was interviewed a few years ago and here's what she said. She said, I failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded and I was jobless, a lone parent and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. She said, I began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me and had I really succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one area, writing, in which I believed I truly belonged. Rowling would say that, that she would never have written the Harry Potter books had it not been for everything else in life failing. And she put her whole heart, her whole life into this one work. And, and it wasn't just the writing of the book that was so uh, adverse filled. She finally wrote the book and she was rejected by over 40 different publishers. And finally, one day, her, her book in this form, just printed off with a binding clip on it, ended up on the desk of a publisher of a small publishing house. And his young daughter found a copy of the manuscript and read it on a train and then convinced her dad that she had to know what happened to these characters. And so her dad published the first book and the rest is history. You see, sometimes it takes something hard, something even painful to break through to us. And kids, you're in a great season where your job every day is to learn. It's the one thing you're supposed to do in the season of life. And so you go to school or maybe you're homeschooled and your parent teaches you. And your job is to just soak up knowledge, soak up information, grow and develop. It's an awesome stage to be in. A lot of us who are taller and older than you, we've kind of learned how to not do that anymore. A lot of us stop learning when we get done with school. And so they use a phrase, it's hard to teach old dogs. And, and it's a cliche, but it's true. How many of us resist learning, resist changing, resist things that are new when we get old? And it takes hardship. It takes adversity. Educational psychologists will tell us that the two times when adults learn are crisis and transition. And it often takes for us a hard season, an adverse season to open us up. And that's what happens in the story of Jonah. Jonah goes through a tremendous season of adversity. And in that time and in that season, what happens is he begins to be open to things that are new because he has to. 
So last week we started this series and today we're continuing. So if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to open up to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to read the last verse of Jonah, and then we're going to read all of Jonah 2. Don't worry, it is one of the shorter chapters in Jonah. And kids, we often stand when we read God's word in worship, and so I'm going to ask everybody to stand this morning, whether you have a Bible or not. The verses will be here and on the screen, and you can follow along. In Jonah 1.17, it says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol, and you heard my voice. You threw me into the depths and into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sights, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple." The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gate shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jesus, we pray that our hearts would be open. And our eyes would, and ears would be open to what it is you want to say to us this morning. We pray that we would recognize just how much you love us and care for us and how you want to work in our life. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. This morning, what I want to do is, is I want to walk you through the five stages in our experience of God's grace. If you've ever wondered, how does God's grace work in someone's life? We're going to see it played out in these first two chapters in the book of Jonah. And the first stage in experiencing God's grace, it it may be surprising or counterintuitive, it's that we reject God. To have a place where you need God's grace means a situation is taking place where grace is the right response. And we saw this last week, if you were here. The book of Jonah begins with Jonah rejecting God. God tells him to go to the city of Nineveh and to preach to those people. And and a short summary of of Jonah's response is, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to obey that God. He basically, like a very small child, says no. Um, And and he says, I'm not going to do that. He rejects God and he rejects God's calling on his life. That's the very first step. And for a lot of us, if you can think back to times when you experience God's grace, it began with God trying to do something or God wanting to do something in your life. And you said, no. And, and I know it's, it's hard to talk about or think about in church because you've just sang these great praise songs to God, these great worship songs to God. But, but many of us have had moments, if we think back in the recent past or maybe the distant past, where we rejected God. That's the whole reason we needed salvation in Christ. 
And, and so the beginning of our experience of God's grace is a moment that we reject God. The second one is when we run from God or turn from God's ways. And so, so we often reject God. And in that rejection, we begin to move away from him. We begin to turn away from how he's called us to live. And that's what happens in the life of Jonah. In Jonah 1, 14 to 16, I think we see this, that Jonah says, hey, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. I'm not going to preach to those people. I'm not going to do that thing. And he runs in the opposite direction. He says to God, I'm not doing that, God. And then he says, I'm not going there, God. Instead of going to Nineveh from where he was in Samaria, he decides to try to get to Tarshish, literally the opposite side of the world. And so he runs from God, but he also runs from God's ways. He doesn't like what God is doing. He doesn't like what God is asking. He doesn't like the potential that God is opening up that evil, wicked people might experience God's mercy in God's grace. And so if you were here last week, you went through the story, God sends this great storm onto the sea as an act of mercy to Jonah. He pursues Jonah and he goes after him. And as we're going to see today, even though we reject God and even though we run from God and even though we turn from God's ways, God's grace still is available to us and it pursues us. That's a little bit of recap. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go online and check out that message to get the full picture. But we're going to really start kind of camping out here in number three. We reject God. We turn from God or run from his ways. And then three, life events often lead us to call out to God. Many of us can remember a moment. Maybe it's why you're here today. Maybe it's why you're watching online from somewhere that you're in the middle of a life event or a life season that has opened you up to calling out to God. The, the, the writer Richard Rohr famously has said that after, after 30, success really has nothing to teach us. That it takes adversity, challenge, and difficulty to break us open and to bring us to a place where we're in something new. And, and I've often found in my life, and I've heard this from people as a pastor, in the phrases and the times that people say, I didn't see it coming, or I never planned to be here, those are the moments that we begin to open up and to call out to God. Those are the moments we go, hey, I, I maybe have gone down the wrong path. Maybe this wasn't the right thing to do. Maybe I can't do this on my own. And in those seasons and those times and during those moments, we often call out to God. And that's Jonah's experience. At the end of chapter one, he's literally thrown into a stormy sea. And Jonah two tells us that literally as he's drowning, he calls out to God. Now, I don't know about you, but drowning in my imagination has to be like the worst experience in the world. I, I once was out at Lake Pleasant when I was in college and there was an island a little bit out into the lake and my friends were all going to swim from the beach out to the island and so I wanted to keep up with my friends and so I decided to swim with them. But I'm not a very strong swimmer. And so I got about halfway to the island and I said, hey, I think I could make it. But if I made it, I would be so exhausted. There's no way I could make it back. And we didn't have any boats or jet skis. And, and so halfway there, my friends kept going and I turned back. And as I was swimming back to the shore, I legitimately wondered, am I going to die? Because I, I had so little strength left. 
such a poor swimmer that I was just, I was literally calling out to God, God, don't let me die. I have my whole life ahead of me. I don't want it to be Scott Savage, 19, drowned in Lake Pleasant. You know, I just did not want that to be my, you know, eulogy. And so finally that moment where my foot touched those rocks on the bottom of the lake, I have never sang how great thou art that loud ever (laughs) in my life. And, and, and that's a small, small scale compared to what Jonah experienced, where he crawled out to God and he cried out to God. And, and if you read through Jonah this week as part of our challenge or invitation, then one of the things you may have noticed is this story bears similarity to another story that's told in the Bible. It's recorded in Luke chapter 15. And in Luke 15, there's a story about a father who has two sons. And, and in that story, the younger son says to his father, dad, I want my inheritance. Give it to me now. In that culture, you only got your inheritance when the father died. And so when you asked for your inheritance early, it was basically saying, I wish you were dead. So even though you're not dead, let's act as if you are and give me my money. So the son takes the money and he goes away and he, he has a huge bender. I mean, he just goes and blows all of the money and he wakes up one day with the pigs working to take care of animals that in his culture were unclean, who he never would have touched or even eaten. And he comes to his senses and he realizes that his father's servants have it better than he has it. So he will go home to his father to try to get a better life, a full belly, a better opportunity. And in that moment, he, he, was, he was ashamed. He was embarrassed. He didn't want to be a son anymore, but he wanted a different kind of life. And as we go throughout this story today with Jonah, you're going to see that in many ways, Jonah in the first part of the book is the younger son in what we typically call the parable of the prodigal son. And I just wonder today, as, as you're here, if you're in the middle of a life event that is opening you up to realize that you're not going the right way or life isn't working out the way that you wanted, what is stopping you from calling out to God? Is it a sense of embarrassment? Is it that you want to be able to do it on your own? Is it the opinion of other people? Is it things that you said before? Is it maybe your question or your doubt that, will God actually hear my prayer? I mean, I've done a lot of bad stuff, Scott. Will God actually listen to me? Is God out there? Is he actually capable of, of dealing with the situation? Can he actually save me? And, and we live in an era that is just marked by profound mistrust. We live in the age of cynicism. We live in the age of doubt. In many ways, those have become like fashion pieces, accessories to our lives. And the challenge is that some of us trust our mistrust more than we trust in anything else. Some of us are so mistrusting of people, of leaders, of institutions, of God, that our greatest trust is in our mistrust. Our greatest faith is actually in our doubts. And, and if you're going to call out to God in the midst of the life event you're in, there's going to have to at least be enough faith to call on him. You see people thought the scriptures that they haven't fully figured out what they believe, but they know that if there is a God, he's the only savior. And I want to remind you when Jonah calls out to God here, and we're going to read his, his words here in a second, he doesn't know how it's going to work out. 
You may be in a moment where you're like, Scott, I didn't see this coming. I never planned to be here. That's exactly where Jonah was when he was drowning. He didn't know that a fish was going to come and swallow him. And so when he calls out to God, he doesn't call out with complete confidence of how it's going to end. He calls out with a belief that God is capable of saving him. Here's what he says in Jonah 2.1. He says, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol and you heard my voice. See, life events often lead us to call out to God. And number four, we discover God then where we least expected to find him. We often have beliefs that there are certain places that we find God and certain places that we don't. We have expectations that these are the places where God shows up and these are the places that God doesn't. But if you read the story of Jonah and you read the other 65 books in the Bible, what you see is God is often showing up in the places where we least expect him. And for Jonah, it was in the form of an animal. In Jonah 1.17, it says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, this word fish in, is there in English. It's originally in Hebrew because Jonah was written in Hebrew. Fish was a catch-all term for any sea creature. So Nemo, Willie, you know, like the, the Shamu, they're all in the same category in Hebrew. And so when it says great fish, it's the, the best description uh, that they can give in their language of that. And so many people said, Scott, was it, was it like a large version of like Nemo that swallowed Jonah? No, no. It could have been any number of things. There are historical records of people being swallowed by sperm whales. There are records of whale sharks that are capable of swallowing other sharks up to 15 feet long. So it likely wasn't like a gilled fish. It likely was a large mammal. And some people have said, Scott, how can we legitimately believe in 2023 that a person could be swallowed by a whale, live for three days, and then make it out? Like this, is, this story has to be like a fictional account. I don't know. Our faith is based upon a man dying on a cross, being buried and being raised to life three days later. At the core of our faith is a belief in the miraculous and the impossible. And so when it comes to Jesus being risen from the dead, 5,000 people being fed, the lame walking, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, and a man being in the belly of a whale. If you don't believe in anything miraculous, you're going to have to take your, an X-Acto knife to your Bible, and it's going to get hacked up seven ways from Sunday. And one of the books that's really helped me to make sense of this historical account is Tim Keller's book, Rediscovering Jonah, where he talks about the fact that Jesus thought Jonah was a real person. So why shouldn't we? But one of the things that Keller says in his book, he says, if it's true that Jonah, a person who talked with God, who got revelation from God, a great prophet of the Old Testament, can be blind to grace to the point where it distorts his very life, it's even more likely that all of us in this room, to one degree or another, are also blind to it. 
Jonah has so misunderstood God and misunderstood God's grace that as we saw last week, he doesn't get God. He doesn't perceive God. And that's why he's in the belly of the whale. That's why he's drowning in the sea. And so today for us, the challenge is, can we believe that God could do that for him? It was his belief. Could God ever give mercy and grace to people who don't deserve it? And if it's possible for Jonah, who heard directly from God and prophesied about that, if it's possible for him to miss God's grace and him to mess where God was and where God isn't, it's possible for us to miss God's grace and us to get confused on where God shows up and where God doesn't. And one of the things the text tells you in verse 4 is that from the foundations of the mountains, Jonah was sinking and he was calling out to God. So kids, if you're still in the room paying attention, here's a question for you. What's the tallest mountain in the world? Mount Everest. Everest. Thank you very much. Mount Everest. Mount Everest is 29,032 feet high. And above ground, Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world. But if you count the depths of the sea, Mount Everest is not the tallest mountain in the world. It's actually Manakee. This mountain, this volcano in Hawaii that is 13 to 14,000 feet above sea level and is over 16,000 feet below sea level. So when Jonah says the foundations of the mountains, he's not speaking about the base of Mount Everest in Nepal. He's speaking about the foundations of the mountains at the depths of the sea that he was sinking in. And that was the place from which he found God. I sank to the foundations of the mountains, he says. And as my life was fading away, he's like, he's really drowning now. I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you, God, to your holy temple. The temple was the most significant place for a Jew in all of the world. Originally constructed by King Solomon and then later restored by Ezra, the temple located in Jerusalem was the place where God was. That was the place where you found God. And in the temple, the Holy of Holies was the inner portion of the temple, That this section right here, that only one priest, the high priest, would go into on one day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And on that day, in the place where the Ten Commandments set, inside the Ark of the Covenant, the high priest would take blood from a sacrifice and he would pour it out on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, known as the mercy seat. And that sacrifice would symbolize God's forgiveness through the shedding of the blood for the forgiveness of people. And so when Jonah is saying, I was looking to your holy temple, Lord, he was looking to the mercy seat, hoping that God could forgive him for what he had done, hoping that God would be merciful to him as he was dying. And what Jonah was hoping for in a moment is what Jesus came and ultimately did. Paul talks about this in Romans 3, where he says, The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, no distinction between people. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Jesus as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. 
So if you're drowning today, if you're in the middle of circumstances that you didn't see coming, that you didn't expect, that have taken you by surprise, don't look to a building on the other side of the world. Look to Jesus who once and for all becomes the mercy seat, that through his blood you can be forgiven. Put another way, if you're drowning today, look to Jesus. Call out to him. Plead to him. Invite him to bring his mercy and his grace in your life to change your situation. The fifth part of this grace process is this. We reject our idols and we accept that salvation comes from God. We reject our idols and we accept that salvation comes from God. At the end of Jonah's prayer here, which it says it was from the belly of the whale, but please be clear, he didn't write it from the belly of the whale. He didn't have his waterproof iPhone case and just thumb out Jonah chapter 2. He didn't have a waterproof scroll and a waterproof stylus. He likely recorded this later. And in Jonah 2 verses 8 and 9, he says, Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then after that prayer, it's that God commanded the fish and the fish vomited Jonah on the dry land. See, see what happens is that Jonah doesn't know that, that he's going to get out. Again, you know the whole story. He didn't. So he didn't know that he was going to be vomited out. He just knew he was in the belly of a whale. I don't know. I'm glad to be here. I haven't died yet, but I don't know how this is going to end. And, and let me just tell you that this story ends in a rather messy way. When my friends pointed this out to me, can you imagine what Jonah was like when he came out of that whale? I mean, covered in bile and digestive juices from a whale large enough to swallow him. And then you know what happens when you get on sand, it sticks to you. So he's got sticky sand. I mean, it's messy. It's gross. Again, I'm helping you rediscover Jonah. You're welcome. <laughs> But I want to remind you of that because God's grace is not nice and neat. It's messy. God's not afraid of our mess. And when he meets us with his grace, he doesn't immediately remove all of that mess. He forgives us, yes, and, and cleans us up spiritually. But you don't meet Jesus and immediately everything that was messy in your life is perfectly gone. It didn't happen for Jonah and it won't happen that way for you. Now, we've been using a word today that, that often gets used in the church and I want to make sure we understand it. It's the word grace. And one of the best ways for me to describe to you grace is with a story. One of the best plays, it may be the best selling in terms of ticket sales play in the history of the world is the play Les Miserables. We shared it when we first did at the movies several years ago here at Cornerstone. And in the new version with Anne Hathaway and Hugh Jackman, uh, Hugh Jackman plays the central character. And in the beginning of the movie, he's running away after he has gotten free from prison or escaped from prison. And he ends up in the home of a priest who takes him in. And he, at this point, is very hardened, very skeptical, uh, very sinful. And so sitting at this meal with this priest, he eyes the candlesticks as well as a bunch of other valuable things in the priest's home. And he ends up stealing these candlesticks. He takes them away and he, he runs away with them. 
He runs away with all the wealthy, expensive things the priest owns that he could sell and begin a new life. But he's arrested and he's brought back to the priest. And he, he, they, the, the officers drop him at the, the priest's feet and say, hey, what do you want us to do with him? And, and the priest, in a very surprising act of grace, doesn't require that he be sent to prison, doesn't require that he pay some sort of restitution. He goes up to Hugh Jackman's character and he says, hey, you forgot these. And he gives him two more candlesticks. See, there's a huge difference between God's justice, his mercy, and his grace. I remember as a kid, I had really blown it one day, and my dad explained to me the difference. He's like, son, if I gave you what you deserve for doing what is wrong, I would be, I would be just. That's what God's justice is. It's giving someone what they deserve. He goes, if I didn't give it to you, that would be mercy. He goes, if I went, though, and bought you ice cream... That would be grace. See, all of us like Jonah have rejected God and run from him. And there is a just response from God. And many times you just say, man, I wish God would be merciful to me and not give me what I deserve. She said last week, all of us in different ways have experienced God's mercy. We've not gotten what we deserve. But God isn't just interested in not giving you what you deserve. He's interested in giving you something you don't deserve. And what Jonah experiences and what's available to us through Jesus is not just a merciful response. It's his grace. If you like an acronym, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's God's riches, the things we don't deserve because of what Jesus did for us. And we see in the story of Jonah that he experienced that. As my life was fading away, because I had rejected God, because I had run from God, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, God, to your holy temple. And so God commanded the fish and the fish vomited Jonah onto dry land. See, see grace is a concept that I can talk to you about. But grace doesn't change us when we're told about it. Grace changes us when we experience it. Grace begins to transform us, not when you hear somebody give a message about it or a sermon or you read about it in a book. Grace changes you when you know what you deserve and you don't get it. You get something else that you don't deserve. That's when grace changes you. When somebody that you love, that you care about, maybe you promised before God and people that you deeply wound, and instead of you giving that person what they deserve or they give you what you deserve, you give them something they don't deserve. Forgiveness. Grace. A second chance. That's when grace changes you. That's how grace changes us. And that's why Jonah is so insistent in this passage that we have to be careful that we don't look to other things and other gods instead. In verse 8, he says, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. That, that phrase, faithful love, is a phrase that's throughout the Old Testament. In Hebrew, it's hesed. It's God's covenant love, his faithful love, his unconditional love, his loving kindness. And he says, if you hold on to idols, you won't be able to experience God's love at his best. In the world of Jonah, people literally worshiped small 
figurines, carved images that represent local deities. And you're like, man, how, how dumb were those ancient people? We've just found ways to, to kind of update over 2,700 years our idols. Today, for us, it looks like money. It looks like a relationship. It looks like some sort of achievement. It looks like people's attention and approval. We have our own idols today. They're just no longer made of wood and stone. They're made of LCD and pixels. Tim Keller famously defined idols as an idol is anything you look to for what only God can give. And I would hazard a guess that today, or certainly yesterday and probably tomorrow, all of us will look to something other than God to meet a need that only God can meet. We'll look to something to give us what only God can give us. And what Jonah is saying here is that idols don't save us. Salvation comes from the Lord. And what's interesting, and this is kind of a sneak peek on next week, is I'm not sure if Jonah was writing about other people or himself when he said that those who cherish worthless idols abandon faithful love. I think, and this is just me, this is not the Bible, this is Scott. I think he was speaking about others. Because what you're going to see in chapters 3 and 4 is Jonah still has idols. He still has things or even views of God that he's looking to. And he is going to find himself running headlong in a collision with those. So I would just encourage you that if you're like, Scott, how terrible is it that people look to money for what only God can give them? Be careful that you judge others for something that may be happening in your own heart. Because as John Calvin famously said, the heart is an idol factory. We, we naturally and in our flesh gravitate to them again and again. On the back of your hand, there's a couple of next steps if you want to look at those today as we close. And here's the first one. I want to encourage you to embrace God's grace as your only hope for salvation. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you've never embraced his grace, today could be that day. Today could be that day. I was reminded last night of this when I uh, read the news that Matthew Perry passed away. Famous actor from uh, the TV show Friends. And Matthew Perry's story is an incredible one. I read his biography earlier this year. He spent years battling tremendous addiction, even at the height of his fame. And he writes in his book about what happened in his life when he called out to God. This is an excerpt from his book. He said, God, please help me. Show me that you are here, God. Please help me. I started to cry. I mean, I really started to cry. That shoulder-shaking kind of uncomfortable and uncontrollable weeping. I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe. Taking care of decades of struggling with God and wrestling with life and sadness, everything being washed away like a river of pain gone into oblivion. He said, I had been in the presence of God. I was certain of it. And this time I had prayed for the right thing, help. Eventually the weeping subsided, but everything was different now. I stayed sober for, so, for two years based solely on the moment, that moment. God had shown me a sliver of what life could be. He saved me that day and for all days. And no matter what, he turned me into a seeker, not only of sobriety and of truth, but also of him. 
today, no matter where you are, what you're drowning from, or what you're in the middle of, I encourage you to embrace God's grace. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. An opportunity is available today. And if that's you in a second, I want to lead you in a word of prayer. Secondly, I want to encourage you that maybe for you, it isn't embracing God's grace. It's repenting of where you've been running from God and turning from God's ways. Maybe you say, Scott, I've embraced God's grace before, but I've, I've turned from God or I've turned from his ways. And repentance, I'll just remind you, is not just saying my bad. I, went, I did something wrong. It's going a different direction. It's going, hey, this isn't the right way to go. I'm going to go somewhere different. And if neither one of those are really ringing a bell for you, then, then here's the third one. I want to invite you to pray the dangerous prayer in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Not all prayers are created equal, and some prayers are more dangerous than others. At the end of Psalm 139 is arguably the most dangerous prayer in all the Bible. There David writes, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Perhaps you have an idol and you don't know it. Perhaps you have a need for grace and you haven't realized it yet. Maybe for you, the the prayer is not, I need God's grace or I need to repent. It's God, show me where I need your grace. Show me where I need to repent. And if you're going to pray that, just beware. God's going to find something. It may make you uncomfortable. It may challenge you. That's why it's a dangerous prayer. But God's grace is something we can only experience as we recognize our need for it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the book of Jonah and his story. We thank you for the fact that in the midst of his hatred and his disobedience, you extended him grace. And we pray that in our lives, in the places where we've rejected you, run from you, turned away from you, that whether you use a life event or you just convict our heart, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us. We pray that you would show us our need for you and we thank you that you meet our neediness with your grace, your riches at Christ's expense, an undeserving gift that comes to us. We thank you for that. And Jesus, I pray that if there are people in this room right now or people watching online who've never embraced your grace and maybe you're in a moment like Matthew Perry was a few years ago when he just was at the bottom of a long, deep hole. We pray that that right now you'd be speaking to their hearts, reminding them and revealing to them their need for you. So I just pray right now, if that's you, that you might pray this prayer right along with me. Jesus, I need you. I need your grace. I've rejected you and I've run from you and I'm drowning. So Jesus, I call out to you. Help me. I can't save myself. I need you to save me. I've made mistakes. I need you to forgive me. I'm a mess. Make me clean. Jesus, today I look to you and I trust in you. Do for me what you did for Jonah. Amen.